This episode of The Dusty Allen Show wouldn't have been possible without our good friends from I Am Thirsty. Well, it still would have been possible, but they are great supporters of the show. Now, for the perfect accompaniment to your drinks or cocktails at home, check them out at iamthirsty.com.au or iamthirstyau on Instagram. You can purchase online or view the full list of their stockers on the website. Don't forget to chuck in the code THIRSTYFORDUSTY for 20% off. That's all caps, THIRSTYFORDUSTY for 20% off. Bang. On this episode of The Dusty Allen Show, we're chatting with Brendan Major. He's a Doctor of Philosophy in Neuroscience, holds a PhD in Electrophysiological Changes in Female Athletes Post-Concussion, and has a degree in Kinesiology and Exercise Science. He's also a post-doctorate research fellow, and at the time of this podcast release, he's a premiership coach in the VFLW with the Essendon Football Club. Phew, I don't think I left anything out there. We caught up a while ago and covered a vast range of topics, including a deep dive into sports-related concussions, leadership in coaching, and how it can transcend sport into the corporate world. We talk about what good teams and good organisations do to get the best out of their people. And we also chat about the origins of strength and conditioning in sport and the path that it's taken since, whilst he also shares what he calls his Wednesday rule. If you manage people or coach a team, then this is the podcast for you. You're definitely going to learn some things in this episode. So come on in. The water's great. Uh, Brendan Major, welcome to the Dusty Allen Show. Thank you very much. Been a been a been a moment, I suppose, a while coming. Been a guest I've wanted to have on the show, but uh, given circumstance, room, we've finally been able to uh, be in the same place at the same time, socially distant, and all those sort of things uh, as well. Uh, how are things ticking along for you? Yeah, pretty good at the moment. It was um, this last lockdown's been probably the most difficult of the lot. So. Um, sort of took a took a week off work and recharged the batteries and, and now good to go again, starting to get back into football. So it's exciting that, that football's only a few weeks away. Yep, I can imagine. And hearing this week that we've, we, Melbourne, where we're, we're broadcasting from, is just become the most locked down city in the world. Something I'd probably ignored for a long time, didn't realise then all of a sudden it hits home. I was like, oh, okay, this has been uh, been a long time. Uh, how have you been navigating, has it been, well, I suppose it hasn't been business as usual for you, but what's probably been in arguably, not arguably, the most talked about topic in the last like two years, what's been the biggest adjustment for you? Uh, definitely the work, the working from home in general. So um, I, I get energy from people, I like being around people, I like you know being in a, a busy office space, I like being in a, a busy football club, so... Being, not being around people and being able to draw that energy from other people has been difficult. Um, the first lockdown was kind of, the novelty of it sort of placated some of the, the, the pain points of it. So it was like, okay, this is, this is all right. It's a bit novel. I'm working from home, you know, making the best of it. And it felt, you know, a lot of people felt like we were doing it together. And then as they've gone on, it's like, okay, we thought this was a one-time deal. Mm. We, we bought a dud here yeah so um this last this last one was the hardest um 
and the disruption to the football season was a was a real pain because mm. you're trying to get momentum, you're trying to plan, um, and you sort of get to the point. It's like, well, do I even bother planning because it's it's going to throw a spanner in the in the rain. I think the like that and at all levels, you know, hearing like you know seasons cancelled or particularly with women's football in Victoria getting literally to the penultimate game and then mm-hmm. essentially having it cancelled. And then the year before with the AFLW not being able to have a have a grand final, community sports and the fatigue for me is the the real one. And that this this and I say it now with a smile on my face, but it's not not that I think it's particularly funny. It's almost like hysterical. The last lockdown I think hurt the most. I felt like we, as in a, a Victorian community, were were in the clear. We'd done the hard work. We'd we'd had mm. some lockdowns, and then we were starting to sort of come. And say, okay, that's fine. We had a little bit of a flare up here and there, and then yeah, it was a real sort of kick in the guts. I think as a community, realised that we'd, we there's not much more we can do. Mm. And without getting into the details of you know vaccination all that sort of stuff, yeah, it definitely hit to, hit a little bit different. And I just now know the the fatigue is real, the apathy is real, mm-hmm. and Everyone's doing what they can to get through it. Some people are doing better than others, as yeah. evident with things happening. And then to throw in an earthquake in the <laughs> middle of that as well, just to just to test everyone's metal. Yeah, that's that's that was a that was an interesting that was an interesting event for me because it, it made me realise um, how messed up my brain is because I was standing on on the second story of my apartment as the earthquake was going on, and all my brain could say was, "This can't be an earthquake. We're not on a fault line." So it just showed how little I knew about earthquakes and two, how my first response wasn't a fear response. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to rationalise it away. 100%. It's one of those rare times, and thankfully there were no injuries. Mm. It's one of those rare times where something actually happens that you maybe see like in the movies or in pop culture, like it's finally happening to me. Not in a, it, maybe it's a morbid sense of curiosity. I was in the shower and I felt I could hear the windows rattling and it had been a, being Melbourne, there's a, the occasional windy day. Mm. I heard, I thought, gee, that's a bloody strong wind. And then when I felt the house shaking, I thought, that's that's an outrageously strong wind. It shouldn't rattle the whole foundation of the house. And I yep. thought, that's a tremor, and didn't think anything of it. And similar to you, I was like, oh, it must be an extreme anomaly because earthquakes don't happen here. And not my knowledge of fault lines is minimal. I was like, I don't think we're in a in a hot spot here. It's not you know New Zealand or you know west coast of the of the states. And then I got back to my desk at my home office, and I had these text messages saying, "Are you okay?" Are you? And I thought, "Shit, have I missed another meeting? Am I <laughs> running late here?" Or so is normally what I get. And then realised yeah, what had what had happened. And yeah, it was. Yeah, surreal to say the least. But you're glad everyone was uh, was okay. Mm. And now tell me, are you are you born and bred Victoria? Yes, so country Victoria. So I I, I was born in Mildura. Yep, uh, up on the border. And then my my father's actually a park ranger. So I grew up. So my my early years were in a place called Hatter, which is a national park. So I actually grew up living in a national park. That like it reminds me of a TV show that I can't think of, and I'm my mind wants to go to like Skippy. <laughs> I was about to say, you're going to say Skippy. Yeah, right? and look, I know I'm <laughs> cliched you here, and, and probably yeah. like backhanded comment or offended no, you. So no, like how? So you said Hatter. Yeah. So Hatter Colquhoun National Park. Right, and like what's the to break it down? Like I'm a country boy too. I need some mm-hmm. context here. Like what's the population? Is there a is there a town? Is yeah, it just great. like a town centre? Like one yeah. pub. 
general store sort of setup? No. Right. <laughs> there was two houses. Oh, and okay. over the course of my <laughs> over the course of my uh, sort of 11, 12 years there, we lived in both. They, yep. So there's basically the two ranges huts there. So if you yep. look Haddock on National Park up on Google Maps, you get the satellite view and it's two houses. Right. So there was the corner store, which was five or six k's away, which yep. is basically the roadhouse that was on the main highway. Um, Oyen was 45 k's away yep. and Mildura was 100 k's away. Right, okay. If I had a better better resources and more money to this show, I'd have someone looking that up right now on <laughs> yeah, the uh, on the laptop, but I've got one hand holding the, holding the mic. So yep. what was it... Like, cause I'm immensely proud of where I grew up and my town. It's incredibly unique. Best place to grow up in the country. You can basically run amok, and it's very impossible. It's, it's hard to get in trouble, you know. Aside from almost killing yourself on your bike or mm-hmm. playing, you know, in, out in the bush and whatnot. What was what's the fondest thing you remember of growing up in a in a remote, you know, small town? Um, I've got a lot of fond memories. I think it was obviously hot. Usually impactful on my life, um, so I spent all of those years bushwalking, fishing, you know, just hanging out. Like there was no, there wasn't anybody, there wasn't anyone else. There was. Um, I remember one year my parents got me rollerblades for for Christmas, and there was no concrete. No, there was there was the concrete around the house, the footpath around the house that I could that I could skate on, and that was it. <laughs> there wasn't. I mean, that's like gravel uh, tracks that, and that's stuff. That's exactly yep. dirt. There was there there wasn't anything else. So that it's um it was very isolated. But um, when I tell people that story, they a lot of people tend to recoil and be like, "Oh, that that would be really lonely." It's like, well, not when you're a child because you don't if you don't know any different, mm. it's not lonely. Yep. You can't you can't miss people if you never had people. Yep. So, um, in terms of socializing you know when campers came by or going to school and stuff like that but it was predominantly my brother and i for for the first sort of decade it's true like makes you get creative and the the town that i grew up in significantly bigger we're talking 3500 people in the whole area including all Mm -hmm. the farms and whatnot so you never not to say i was never short on someone to play with but you just I feel like it was also a slightly different time. Like this is growing up pre-mobile phones and things like that. So you couldn't, you had to, if you had someone's house to go to, mm. you, it was luck of the draw. You'd go and you'd actually knock on doors and see if someone was there and stuff. Mm. And you, you, you know, building cubby houses and, you know, BMX tracks and stuff. And you talk about not having the right equipment for where you're living up with the toys. I was adamant I wanted a BMX bike. And so saved a bit of money and dad was like, if you save half, I'll pay the other half and bought this BMX bike. It was made for riding on, on bitumen, like concrete, like a stunt mm-hmm. bike and stuff. Mm-hmm. And literally most of the places I'd be riding would be gravel. Yep. So I realized very quickly, I was an extremely poor choice of like bike <laughs> to, to get and stuff. All these kids able to do like the jumps and stuff, A, which I was too scared to do and B, just had zero control and stuff. So, you know, first lesson is maybe do a bit of research and listen to what the guy at the sports shop is uh, is telling you as well. So, Well, the, fir- the first step for me would have been have a sports shop. <laughs> yeah, correct. Sorry. I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm indulging, indulging here. Yeah, my luxury of a, uh, of a small town. Now, you're a doctor. And apologies, I didn't uh, address you or your correct no, uh, title. Don't, don't uh, call me not. doctor, no one does. So 
Tell me a little bit more about uh, you know your your path to being a neuroscientist, mm-hmm. and is it something that started from when you were younger? And like, how does someone come to be a you know, a doctor of, of, of neuroscience? Yeah, that's so. I'm not the type of person that sets huge, huge goals and oh, I'm going to do this, and in the next fifteen years, I'm going to do this, and and has a stepwise plan. I tend to try and whatever's right in front of me. Um, I try to do that as best as I possibly can. So for me, um, I started out, out out of school, I started out working um, for DHS, which is Department of Human Services, working in, in disability support services. And I really... That's straight out of high school? Straight out of high yep. school. I really didn't have um, any inclination as to what I was going to do um, or what I wanted to do, really, to be honest. Uh, and then this was in... Because at the time I was living in Swan Hill... So I'm so curious to know because mm-hmm. it was it was in important part or time in my life about that conversation you maybe have with your your family uh, whatever your, your situation is about what you want to do after school mm-hmm. and a lot of the time it's either uh, tertiary studies or mm-hmm. get a trade or join the workforce or and I'm I'm maybe showing my age here but like gap years weren't a thing when no, I was weren't. towards the end of and I feel like it's less and less even. An Australian thing is more a a, a a bit of a global thing. But what was was that a, a, a or did you just know like the end of school that's what you wanted to do, or did you kind of fall into it? No, I just all? fell into it. Yeah, no, I absolutely, just fell into it. So, um, it was so coming out of high school because I was a bit aimless. I think that contributed to probably not performing as quite as well at high school as, mm-hmm. as I wanted to. I, I wasn't stimulated at school at all. Um, that format just didn't work for me. Yeah, um, and did you do the 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 units where it would allow you to go to do yep. tertiary study? Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yep. But what I did, I didn't. I, the The schools that I went to probably didn't equip me well enough for for what I for what was next. So growing up where I grew up, and then moving to Swan Hill for for high school, um, I didn't really going to university was sort of this. Um, mysterious thing it wasn't it wasn't anything that I'd thought of doing I didn't really understand what it was um it's not something that I'd really put a lot of time and and my my mates still make fun of me about it because at high school I'm never going to uni what what do you need uni for it's kind of that defiant ignorance thing um so out of high school a friend of mine's mother worked for DHS and got me that's that's all it was so it was just a just a job just a job it was just a job and then um I sort of I I really enjoyed it, um, and I think I, I honestly can't remember how long it lasted. I think it was sort of eight to twelve months. It's a long time ago now. Um, and then my because at the time my parents had moved out and they'd moved to Bendigo, so I was living in the house and they sold the house. So I was like, well, do I want to stay in Swan Hill? Probably not. So then I moved, um, and one of my mates was a one of my best mates was a pilot at the at the Point Cook RAF base. So he was a flight instructor. So I came down to visit him. And this is probably, this is indicative of how I've lived most of my life. I went down and went, oh, this place is fun. Um, at the time, I'd done a personal, I'd just done a personal training course, like one of those six-week ones. Um, so I went to the closest gym, to the RAF base, and I said, do you need someone to work in your gym? And they said, no, we need a swim instructor though. So I walked out the front of the gym, called the swim instructor school, booked in for that weekend, walked back in and said, I'm doing the course on the weekend, can they have the job? And they said yes. 
So I love the way that works. It's <laughs> so, like, you know, that's that's old school and just yep. hustling. It's like, okay, you sound like a problem solver. Yep, yeah, that, solutions that, focused what, individual. What do, yeah. what do I need to do? This is what I need to do. Did it. Um, lasted sort of a couple of months at the job. It was like, you know, this is a small gym in a gated community. Like it wasn't, it wasn't anything. Um, and then from there started working in personal training studios. And then it's just, for me, it's just always what's next step, next step, next step. And it's not, it's not, a, I have to achieve, 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 push, push, push. It's just what my brain does. It's just like, okay, I'll do this next. Started working um, with Werribee uh, VFL football club. Mm-hmm. And was doing sort of like I'd done a lot of athletics, um, so I did was doing speed coaching, uh, running technique, things like that, agility work. Spoke to Doug Brown, who was the head of high performance there, and I said, "Okay, what what do I need to do to to progress?" And he said, "You got to go to uni." So, got a reference letter from Doug, went to uni. And was that sort of like you talk about like turning, not so much like a turning point. It was where this, literally that was just the next step you needed to do. It yep. was like, oh, I'm going to go to uni. Yep. It's like, oh, cool. Like, like you did when you walked out yep. and called the swim school, same thing. Yep. Exactly the same thing. It was, it was okay, I'm interested in this. How do I do my best job at this? What do I need to do? That's what I need to do. All right, I'll go and do that. The turning point for me, if I, if I think of sort of huge bends in my life trajectory is when I went overseas. So... I did my a couple of years of the undergrad. I did accelerated the courses. So that's how many units can I do in the same semester mm-hmm. and just overloaded myself as I, as I tend to do. Um, and they had an exchange program. Now, I always wanted to go overseas, but it never sat well with me, the idea of giving up work, giving up study just to go on a holiday. Like that, that, didn't, that didn't fit with, with the way I operated. So I... Once I found about the exchange program, I can get financial support from the university. I can get an overseas experience, and importantly, I can keep continuing my study. So I momentum keeps momentum going. keeps yeah. going. So I went overseas, and my life changed. It was like, oh, I was very sheltered. I had no idea. Um, and when you go overseas, I think we, as humans, we we set up a, a caricature of ourselves and this is this is who we are and, and we reinforce that with things we do every day and, and we you know we create these echo chambers to reinforce those things. When you go overseas, people openly ask you, who are you? So it's like what do you like? What do you do? You know, they when we grow up, it's just you grow up with your mates, you're hanging out with your mates, they know who you are. They never ask those questions. Um so when I went overseas and all of a sudden I was having to actually answer that question. Do you find that you got to choose who you were in a way? Very Whereas, much, very much like so. in the environment that you grow up in, it's defined. You people they know who you are. You know, whereas there, no one does. So you, they can say, you know, who are you? What do you do? Go, oh, I do this. You can choose to overshare in some areas or not share in others. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you you get caught in you know people's perception. Like when you're growing up, it's like, oh well, this is what we do. This is what we've always done. This is this is who we are. So, went overseas, um, learn a lot about myself. Live, you know, when you live that far away from your family and friends, and you know, you got to make a whole new life. And I was supposed to be there for four months, and again, I did the, a, a very major thing to do, and I and I met a really, really great strength conditioning coach named Jeff Watson. Um, all these, all the students raved about him, and and I met him. He'd been doing it for twenty years, and he was the type of guy that completely immersed himself 
some person that completely immersed himself in what he was doing. So when he was a grad um, student at Michigan, he lived in the gym. So he was, that's, that was him. That's, that's who he was. Um, his job was who he was. And I really respected that. So in, in true Jeff fashion, and I loved the lack of pomp and circumstance around it. I'm like, Oh, can I buy you lunch? He's like, yeah, sure. And we went to Subway, Subway, because it was the closest to the gym. It was just down the road from the gym and he wanted to stay close to the gym. So we went to Subway and I said, how do I, how do I, uh, how do I work with you? Like this, this stuff's amazing. I haven't been exposed to any of this strength conditioning stuff before um, that he was doing. And he said, well, you can do a master's and then I can be your supervisor. And so great. Fantastic. I'll do that. So, so then, sorry if I'm missing. What yeah. was your, what was your undergrad? So undergrad was exercise science at yep. VU. Yep. So I did an undergrad in exercise science and I was finishing up the year that I, that last semester that I had overseas. So it took me about two and a half years to do a three and a half year undergrad, four year undergrad. And then, so I chose exercise science over human movement because I didn't want to do the PE teaching part. I knew that part. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did the science part, the science stream. And then I'm curious to know why did, why was that not appealing to you? um, it, it, It probably wasn't more that that wasn't appealing. It's just, again, to me, the science stream was harder. So I was like, it's more versatile, it's harder, I'm going to learn more things, whereas mm-hmm. the PE teaching stuff was the was more like um, pedagogy and, and teaching PE classes and stuff and like you that. You knew that you could probably yep. do that, <laughs> that a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. And, and probably at the time it was a lack of understanding of, mm. the, of the intricacies of all of that kind of thing. Yep. But um, the science stuff was, was the hard part. So I went in and I spoke to people in grad school and I said, you know, how does this all work? And they said, oh, you do a master's. Because overseas you have to do an undergrad, mas- honours, master's, PhD. It's a, yep. pr- it's a, it's a process you can't, um, you can't sort of, you can't skip bits. So they said, this is what you've got to do. And if you want to do a PhD, you have to do a master's in science. So in, in, the, in Canada, there's a master's of arts, master's of science. And arts is like... Basketball coaching, football coaching, PE teaching. That's arts, is That's it? That's arts. I always yeah. think it's like arts is, you know, something it's non... Painting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. Yeah. So that's a master's in arts. Forgive me all the arts uh, graduates out there and stuff. We love what you do, yeah, but it just very, shows I need valuable. to do some research. Yeah. yeah. So I uh, I was like, you know, if I did a P, if I wanted to do a PhD in science, I had to do a do an, a, a master's in science. This is in, in, in Canada. So I... Um, for, for what I wanted to do, that didn't work. So I did both. So I did a Master's of Science and the Master's of Strength and Conditioning, high performance. Right. At, like concurrently? Yep, concurrently. Um, so my Master's in Science was muscle physiology, looking at recovery strategies post-muscle damage. And then I did the high performance Master's. Yep. Um, now, when I graduated, I only graduated from one because of clerical errors, but same stuff. So in terms of learnings, I've done all the... the the learnings, the units, the all and it stuff. wasn't something that was going to impact. Like no. you wouldn't be able to put it down on a on a resume or well, or you that would, sort of but stuff. at that point it would be superfluous. Yeah. Once you've got a PhD or a master's in science, then it's it's that's, not needed. Yep. Um. So then I worked for sort of three three and a half years in the school high performance department. So we we did twenty eight different teams, twenty eight male teams, twenty six female teams across. So twenty eight different sports. Um. Got to work with professional athletes in the off season got to coach i cut my teeth on getting to the gym at seven seven o'clock in the morning and leaving at eight o'clock at night and and got to live it and see what it was like to try and develop athletes from 18 year old 
you know, high school kid that comes in first year to a 23, 24-year-old um, pro yeah. athlete. So I got the full spectrum. I got to work with coaches across multiple different sports, um, international coaches, all the way down to local coaches. So it was a fantastic experience to just completely immerse myself in what I was and doing. this was in Canada? This yes. was in Canada. So yep. London, Ontario, so University of Western Ontario. Um, then came back, so... It got to the end. I had to make a decision about whether I was going to live in Canada or live in Australia. Um, and, you know, family was in, in Australia, so I thought, yeah. oh, I'll come back. And it, so at that stage, I've been doing strength conditioning for eight or nine years, coached um, Olympic athletes, gold medalists. I thought, you know. Is that was, all you, what you'd done? Oh, so how long were you overseas for? In Nearly total? four years. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I worked for three and a half years in that, in that facility and – and I, f- I felt as though I was really ready for a, for a strength conditioning job. I'm like, I'm really well trained here. I've got a good background. I've got a, you know, I've completely immersed myself in it. Was it something that you would do, like personally, mm-hmm. you were interested like, in keeping fit and, you know, strength training and those sort of things as well? Yeah, absolutely. But it was more, I believe that a lot of, so strength trainers and personal trainers, there, there's a couple of ways that I see people gravitate towards. And I, I'm generalizing here and I, I understand that, but... A lot people tend to get into strength conditioning because they like training. I like lifting weights, so I I, I want to work in lifting weights. Um, or they get into it because they like the coaching aspects of the science or the science aspect of it. Yeah. Um. So I was very much the science aspect. So I was always always fit and healthy, and I really enjoyed that. But I was never like all I ever wanted to do was go to the gym. That that wasn't how yeah. I lived my life. I was you know had a that was work for me. Um, and then came back to Australia and couldn't get a job interview. Ah, uh, yes, the yeah. old uh, yeah, done done all the and isn't it weird? And I've I, my my education stopped at at undergraduate, and I and maybe it was pop cultural movies have set me up for for failure here. But I thought, oh, you get gra- you graduate, everyone's going to want to employ me because <laughs> I've got this like shiny new degree, and you go and. It's rough sometimes yeah. when you're doing all the all the right things and you're not not getting anywhere. Yeah, that's right, and that's and that was a big learning for me. I sort of came back and I'd done it. I'd been there and I'd, I'd coached all these different athletes and I'd gone off and gotten different experiences. And then when you realise that you can't even your resume doesn't even get you an interview, so not even the job, it doesn't get you an interview. And then I heard a story, and this kind of solidified it for me. Um, <laughs> So I, there, was, there was jobs actually going, uh, interestingly, at Essendon. So there was, and this was um, sort of 2000 and I want to say 14, 15, mm-hmm. around that time that I came back. Um, so I applied for these strength issues. I applied for some jobs with Rugby Australia and didn't get interviewed. Applied for jobs at Essendon and didn't get an interview. And then the Essendon VFL strength issues job came up. Now, this is what I was doing at Werribee before I went away. So I spent three years at Werribee and worked my way up to the point that I'd, I'd taken over the program for sort of the six months before I'd gone, gone away. So it's a job that I had before I did all the work overseas. And I didn't get an interview. And I thought, oh, geez, this is a bit rough. And then I heard a story when I, I was, I was at, a, at a pub with some, some mates and a, a, a friend of a friend had come along and, you know, we were talking about stories. And I was telling this story about how I didn't get an interview. He goes, oh, I... Uh, I know the guy that got the job at Essendon. Uh, his brother gave it to him. 
So this was back in the day where, where, you know, so these guys had been working at the club and one guy had gone away and done, done a strength and conditioning, uh, done, you know, course, short course. And, and so he'd just given the job to his brother. Now, I don't know whether his brother was qualified or was good at the job or, or whatever. Um, and I know the guy now that gave him the job. Like, he's a very, very good operator. Yeah. But it was just one of those things. It's like, we, you know, we need someone to fill this role. It's, I, f- I feel there's a life lesson in that as well. And in somewhat similar vein to yourself, when I moved to Canada and was looking for a had a degree and had some experience and wasn't even getting past the, the administration person mm-hmm. to talk Screening. to that sort of thing. And then... At, funnily enough, footy training, uh, one of the uh, players from the Etobicoke women's team, she said, oh, I know the person who works there, and I was chatting to them by the next Monday. So like, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is not what you know, who you know. And oh, that's yeah. that's no disrespect to the people who do hiring and firing yeah. and that sort of stuff, because now we've all been in the workforce for a long enough time, you know exactly like if people – the place that I work, if they want to get a foot in the door, I can get them talking to at yep. least the right person. Yeah, exactly right. Um, we'll go back to that. So who was the player at the Ruse? Uh, her name, uh, Julia Fry is her name. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I did, no. a, I did a bit of work with Team Canada, so I know a lot of the, a lot of the players. What time were frame were you doing? Oh, 2.14 to – well, up basically till last year. Okay, so yeah. you'd be like, for me like Cody Royal yeah, and, yeah. and yep. types? Yeah, like so played – my time in, in playing in the OAFL was – 2008, 2009, back in Australia for a couple of years and went back in like 2010 to 2011. Who'd you play so, for so in, in uh, Etobicoke? Oh, yeah, played, so uh, yeah, you did play for the Roos. Played for the Roos and then had a, I wouldn't say ill-fainted, but half-hearted stint when I moved to Vancouver with the, <laughs> the Delta Bayhawks. It was like they were the struggling team. I was like, yeah. oh, I'll go help them out. And yeah. it's a funny thing to go and play. Like It was great and mm. it was probably the best thing that ever happened to my footy personally yeah. because... I had to. I was the greatest outside player you've ever seen. Like I say best that, handball receiver <laughs> on the planet. You know? I say that all the time. I was more likely to get hit by a bus because I was so outside than oh, get a hard ball. And then you realise that over there, you got to go. You want the footy, you got to go get it, yeah. and you got to put your head over it. And they're not coming lace out. So yeah, yeah, forever grateful for the my time at the at the Etobicoke Ruse. But yeah, Julia, and she's now. I think she's back in the back in the UK and whatnot. But anyway, I digress. Mm. Um, yeah, you were you were yeah. uh, chatting to the uh, to the Essendon. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so thing. I um so once I found that out, I'm like, okay, strength conditioning is not for me. I, I I know when when I'm beating my head against the wall, and and a lot of the conversations I was having in Australia is my experience had given me a, a completely different look. So my view on strength conditioning was very very different. Very different to what was being taught in Australia. How how so? Like, and two things: oh, yeah. realizing that strength conditioning wasn't a path you probably wanted to go for there, and then when you'd invested so much time mm-hmm. and energy into it, and how did you you sort of rationalize the differences between, say, Australian landscape and mm-hmm. like was yours more North American yep. influence? Yeah. So the genesis of strength and conditioning is really interesting in sport. So when we talk about North American sport. Um, to a team, a college team in the states won a national championship in seventy one and seventy two, and everyone. So all the other, it's it's an arm. It's always an arms race. So it's like, well, what are they doing that we that we aren't? And they had a strength conditioning coach. Now, if you talk to this guy, he also coached the backs, and and he tells the story that less than ten percent of the the players actually used him, but 
from an outside looking in, and this is the whole thing, is we, we, we try and see what everyone else is doing and, and move in. Um, from the outside looking in, everyone saw that they had a strength conditioning coach. So that's like, all right, we've got to go. We've all got to get strength conditioning coaches now. That's, our, that's, that's the next step. So if you look at 40 years ago, 50 years ago, who were the people that lifted weights? So there, there was only two groups. So lifting weights wasn't a, a societal norm. It wasn't, you know, we didn't understand bone health and we didn't understand the benefits of, of strength and conditioning for general populations. The two populations that did it were Olympic weightlifters and um, Venice Beach bodybuilders. Right. So they were the two. So if you've got this, you know, you want a strength conditioning coach, there is no exercise science courses. They don't exist. Where do you get them from? We go to Venice Beach and we'll go to the Olympic lifting. And the field where yep. people are doing it. Where yeah. people are doing it. So that, that's where the two streams, two traditional streams of strength conditioning came from. So you, get, you, got, you created these two camps. One that said we have to do Olympic lifting because it's more sports specific is what they called it. Or you got to do bodybuilding because this is the best way to build. Like we're going to build a machine. We're going to build these big bodies. Yeah. Piece by piece. Piece by piece. So then you get this split of, of the industry around and these two philosophies are born within sport. And then so that's the genesis of strength and conditioning in a lot of, in a lot of team sports is, is those two, that sort of that position. To simplify that with those two streams is, say, the Olympic lifting perspective, is that sort of more outcome-based from a broader sense, like for a particular purpose for, for performance? Mm. And the Venice option is more like maybe like aesthetics or like working. I want to work on my calf. I want to mm. work specifically on my bicep. Or well, it's, it's it's in a way yes, but more it's more of a they think that Olympic lifting is about creating power, and that's the thing you know. And I could talk about this for days. So cut me off if I go on too many tangents here, but. Basically, it's they created power. So it's like, if we do this, we're more athletic. So then if we can, you know, snatch 100 kilos, then we can jump higher on the field. Now, that's, that's, not, uh, that's not a connection. I think that's an erroneous conclusion. Like, that's not a connection that I make. But that's a, that's a, that's a whole different story. That's a whole different podcast. And then the other side of it is, all right, we, we want our athletes to be bigger and stronger. So, you know, if we put, put them in a leg press or put them under a heavy squat or, we, you know, we do a heap of leg extensions, then they'll be bigger. So that's the best way to sort of build mass is to isolate and put time under tension. Now, these are all very much linked. So the, 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 the connection between all these, it's really difficult to tease them all apart. But people created very, very, very strong emotional attachments to each, each one of these. So if you were... So 20 years ago, if you were an Olympic lifter, you would never use a machine. You know, oh, they're big and slow. And then if you were, if, if you used machines and, and did um, isolated movements and things like that, you would never do Olympic lifting because you're like, oh, that's dangerous and it's hard to teach and blah, 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 blah. It doesn't translate, all those kind of things. So there was, there was pros and cons to both. So they didn't really, there wasn't much crossover. And then from all that, then exercise science started to get involved. Once exercise science started to get involved, it progressed as an industry. We started to understand and, and research the systems better. 
understanding training adaptions, loads, speeds, the interactions between all of these things. So then all, slowly but surely the industries have changed over time. So what I found when I came back was Australia being an, an actual island, it had created an echo chamber of strength and conditioning. And so um, my views, my learnings were just com- the, the basis of them was very different to what was in Australia. In Australia, it was very much straight out of the, in my experience, was straight out of the textbook. Like, this is what we've got to do. This is how it is. Why was that different, given that we're talking 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. around this time? Was it so different, given that we're in the age of information now? Like, it's not that hard. And we can observe this video. Like, the world's very connected. What's your thoughts on why there was the, I suppose, the, the difference? Um, because people are resistant to information. So um, strength conditioning is a very, very unique... Well, in my experience, it's a unique profession where the people that hire you as a strength conditioning coach have no idea what you do. So um, as a head coach now of a football team, if I hadn't had that background, when I'm hiring a strength conditioning coach with, with my football operations manager, I would have no... I actually no idea what they do. So... I'll use examples in the States. People are getting hired in the States because they come in and, you know, they, they, they're pseudo the mental toughness, um, grit coaches. Th- that idea of, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to make, I'm going to make your athletes strong. I'm going to make your athletes powerful. No one's going to be able to run over us. And they create that, that real vibe and feeling. So then the people in the room are like, yeah, this is the one we want. And then, you know, they've hurt a quarter of your athletes by six weeks in because they don't really understand um, periodizing training and don't really understand recovery process um, and they're not really staying in their lane, that, that kind of, that's detrimental to the whole thing. So it's when you get like that, you then sell your brand by saying that your brand is better than someone else's. So instead of being collaborative and, oh, you do this and I do this, which is, which is the way a lot of it is now, um, and a lot of really good operators do that now, it's very much, no, 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 I'm secretive, I'm protective, um, especially in the States where everyone's trying to steal everyone else's strength. And is it because, let's say, based on, from like a, a North American perspective, there's a lot of ego in the industry about, well, my way gets, gets results. And, I was and trying to like avoid that. using the word ego, but yes, right. it's a very ego-driven. So, and... Even like in, in Australia, is there an element of, because I, I say this with knowing that Australia is the the king of the tall poppy, you know, sort of mm-hmm. syndrome and the fig jam element of a lot of, say, sports industry. Mm-hmm. And for those who want to know what fig jam is, I'll put a, a, a link to it in the show notes of, uh, yeah, you can Wikipedia that, but it's uh, quite an interesting term, particularly for for those people outside, I think most Australians would know what it is. But those you know outside Australia can have a bit of a uh, bit of looks quite quite amusing. But <laughs> digress. The is there an element of the humbleness more so in Australian sports culture around strength and conditioning, where it's like okay, maybe the the team environment, what's better for all, as opposed to I do this or do you need to have an element of the fig jam to be successful from a S and C perspective? So is is there that culture in Australia? Yes, one hundred percent. It's no different in Australia. It's ex- it's exactly the same. Um, 
is sorry, it was exactly the same. And and I I should preface my statements by saying I've been I deliberately removed myself from strength and conditioning circles um, five or six years ago just because I was like, well, it's, this isn't taking me anywhere. And when I tend to focus on one thing, you know, you can't you can't keep doing doing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's much better understanding and the science behind it's much better now. Um, and there's more understanding of of high performance managers across. Uh, cardio and strength training and then there's the rehab component because rehab is just strength training at a different level like that's that's all rehab is it's just taking an athlete that can't quite do what the rest of the squad can do and getting them up to speed that's that's all it is um physios so much better trained now like the physios that i work with at essendon are just out of this world good they're unbelievable um in terms of their knowledge and and the way that they apply their trade so i think I think the industry is changing. I think there's better understanding now. There's better adoptions of, of scientific principles. Um, there's just there's a better minimum requirement to get in. You know, you basically have to have an undergrad degree minimum now on the strength conditioning courses, and there's better dissemination of information now. So it's much better now, um, but there still is very much like it's still a it's it's a very um, confidence driven yeah. industry. Or anything like. Yep across the board, whether mm-hmm. it be, you know, the fitness industry to throw a super broad, mm-hmm. you know, blanket over that as well. So going from S and C, how have you come to be where you are now? Like, yeah, so know, then so um so so I made the decision not gonna do strength and conditioning anymore, so I'm gonna do a PhD. So I knew that I probably wanted to do a PhD um when I was in Canada. That's why I did the Masters of Science. I worked with a guy, um I, so I knew him and, and had done some help with him on a couple of projects during my undergrad who was at Deakin University. So I signed up to do a PhD there. So my PhD was going to – originally in my master's, I wanted to do the relation of neck strength to concussion. So you, you're talking about dissipation of forces because it's the only thing that connects the head to the rest of your body and it's the only way you can transmit force away. Um, so that's what I wanted to do. It didn't really work out because it's very, very difficult to study. So he was doing electrophysiological um, measures of the brain in response to concussions. I thought, well, that's really interesting to me. Is this so around like 2015, 2016? Yep, yep. So this is, yeah, 20, 2015, 2016. So I thought, you know, this is really interesting. I'm, I'm going to do that. So I came back, enrolled in that. Um, my partner at the time was playing football. Um, so I still remember it really clearly. I went to a practice match and I said to myself, I'm going to sit in the car because I don't normally do that. I'm going to sit in the car, I'm going to read the paper, I'm going to watch footy. Didn't even last to the first quarter and I was at the fence, yelling stuff over the fence. Um, go here, go here, do this. Love it. Yeah, so by the end of that, by the end of that game, I was the runner, but that's a, that's a whole different story. So yeah, I signed up to do a PhD, um, decided to combine the two because I was, I was heavily invested in the football at that stage. So I'm like, right, I'm going to do my, my PhD in the neurophysiological, electrophysiological changes in female athletes post-concussion. So we looked at those changes acutely and how they responded over time, and then we looked um, more longitudinally at, at how was there a difference between athletes that had had a history of concussion um, compared to athletes that didn't have a history of concussion, that, that had played football. Um, so that took up sort of four and a half, five years of my life, and then um, at the end of that, I was fortunate enough to, to meet a... The, the head of radiology at Alfred, again, you know, long story short, random meeting. Um, we, we were at a, a, a 
concussion conference, he had expressed so some changes he'd worked in the States and some changes that they're talking about from for football in the States. And I said that, you know, in the, the, my experiences in women, f- female football, um, women that had started later, you know, had, had shown these sort of um, attributes on the field in terms of protecting themselves and things like this and how that might relate to what he was talking about. So essentially I argued with him and I had no idea who he was at that stage. So I wanted to catch him afterwards. He ducked out early. So I didn't get to. I was going to a brain stimulation conference in Canada a couple of months later. Had a 12-hour layover in LA. Called up my friend. I said, hey, let's go for lunch. She said, great. I'm dropping off my friend at the airport and he gets out of the car. And, and, I was like, and so you had like a, just a disagreement with this guy? Yeah, or it, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a disagreement. Just a, just yeah. a, a robust conversation. A robust yeah. conversation. At a, you know, he was sitting two rows back. So we were both audience members at this point. Okay. He wasn't a panel member. Really. Okay, so it wasn't like on a panel. Right no, no, no. Right. I wasn't yeah. arguing with the panel. I mean, I did that later in the conference, but that's a, that's a separate that's a separate thing. Um, and then we got to talking. He said, do you, you know, do you want to come and, and present your work to my lab? I said, great. Went and did that. He offered me a job and, and I've been at Alfred since. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was kind of, it's just more my path towards where I am now has just been, what am I doing now? How do I do my best version of that? Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Yep. So I've never been emotionally invested in the end result. So I'm not like, I have to get here, I have to be this person or I'm not going to be happy. It's like, what am I doing right now and how do I do it better? You're a very, you enjoy the process. Yep. You enjoy the journey of, of doing that. And are, are you, would you say that you're a, a, a process-driven individual? 100%. Oh, okay. So my mantra at football is trust the process. Uh, yes, this yeah. bef- this before uh, before it became big in like the NBA. Well, was it's it? it's really interesting because I've been saying it for years, and I you know I talk a lot, and so I say a lot of stupid things. And when we had some success on field this year, I had at least a dozen ex players message me, just trust the process. Like you said it, you trust, and I didn't even realize. And then I was watching. Um, I was watching some sort of YouTube stuff on coaches as I do. I really, I really enjoy listening to other coaches talk. Uh, and it's uh, Nick Saban's, I think it's Nick Saban. Yeah. Alabama. Oh, yeah. Alabama. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Nick Saban. It's his whole mantra and it has been for years. And I'm like, I was racking my brain trying to think, did I steal it off him? Or like, did I hear him say it? And that's, it's stuck in my brain and, and it could have been. I have no idea where it got it from. You know, we like to think that all our... We, we absorb stuff. Yeah. And it doesn't mean just because someone sort of you've stolen in a world where yep. everyone wants credit for every yep. thought, idea, yep. meme, whatever it may be. Yeah. it's And it's not something that's out reinventing the wheel. No. And I'm sure it was probably used before him yeah. as well and, and not necessarily in sports. Well, for me, it, it, it came from we sucked. Mm. Like we were bad. We weren't going to lose games. We were an expansion club at Essendon. We, we didn't have a list. We, we didn't have an AFL list to lean on. We weren't an established. So we knew that from where the rest of the league were, comparatively sucked. Mm. So we had to focus on what we could do. So what can I do every day to, to, to build towards that outcome? Because everyone focuses on the outcome and then they get stressed every day when they're not at the outcome. I'm like, yeah, but what are you doing every day to get there? So that's where that came from. Investing in the process is the one variable that you can more often than not control in the process. absolutely right. And and you you focus on winning and winning is so, it's so um, impacted by what the opposition do. Mm. Like you can play your best game. The best game of football I've ever coached, we lost. 
So I'm like, well, you know, if I just worried about winning, I'd be depressed. And I was wrapped after that game. I've, I've been lucky enough to observe you in action coaching. And the one thing that I, and it's just not even from a player, like knowing how it feels to be a player, but watching watching you coach and when you said, I don't care about the scoreboard, here's what we're doing right. And knowing that in a, in a macro sense, these things will take care of themselves. The wins and losses will correct themselves and saying, I'm not fussed about the scoreboard, but we're playing well. Or times when you were winning and said, yeah, but either the other team's not uh, not doing so well or all mm-hmm. these sort of things. And that was the one of the consistencies that I observed from you from you coaching. And the, how that then impacted the players. They know we just got to keep doing what we're doing. You know, you know, you essentially, as much as you can control the scoreboard, you sometimes can't. Like you, you can only control what you're doing and then, you know, the – the numbers will show kind of like Moneyball in a way that you know eventually it'll it'll come. Yeah, it's and it comes back to ownership a lot of it for me. So if you talk about um, wins and losses, it's where you're at, where your squad's at, how you're performing on the day as a team, um, what the opposition's doing, you know, the rubber, the green, all those kind of things. So there's so many things that you can't control in that, and so if you're focusing or you're getting distracted by all these other factors, these, these you know, B factors that we can't, that we can't control. If you're, getting, if you're getting distracted by those, you're not going to perform. Mm. And so before the semifinal, I wrote up on the board, don't let the things that you can't do impact the things that you can. Mm. And that's, that's a really important point, that you've got to focus on what you can control. You've got to focus on what you can do. And you'll take ownership of that. Mm. And then you'll, you'll understand your own progression. And you'll appreciate your own progression and you'll see how the work you're doing now relates to where you're going. Because we have a, a club first mentality and a team second mentality and an individual third mentality. But individual's still in there. Mm. Like that's that's still a component. Like, oh yeah, club first, club first, and team second. But it's like, yeah, but you're you're there. The individual's still there. Um, and so you've got to feel ownership, you've got to feel success, and you've got to understand how what you're doing now relates to those things to to the to the outcome mm. like the fact yep. that you know whether it be at work or at footy the role that you play does contribute to the greater the the, the greater good yes. i suppose if you if you do and yeah. that's what good organizations do mm. so good organizations make their staff understand and value their contribution to what to the outcome to the the to the plan of the business, to the the strategic direction, to the um, to the ethos. It's it's mm. all of these things relate back to how do you get your staff to buy into what you're trying to do. Mm. So if you don't, um, you'll struggle. A perfect example is I, I won't say who the organisation was, but I spoke to it, the the managers of an organisation this year, and I said, how important? Who? So put your hand up in here if you think that work culture is important. So these are the managers. So they all put their hand up. I said, leave your hand up. There's 30, 40 people in the room. I said, leave your hand up if, if work culture is the most important thing in your, at, at your workplace. And about 30 still had their hand up. So 10 put their hand up. I said, all right, now put your hand, leave your hand up if you as the manager have had a conversation about your work culture. And 25 and put their hand down. So I said, 
what's happening in this room is 25 of you have said that your work culture is the most important part of work. You're the manager and you haven't had a conversation about it. So everyone understands. Every, and, and this is the whole um, people that talk about coaching and do books and podcasts and guest speaking. And I'm like, they've never actually coached because it's easy to do. It's easy to understand. It's hard to, it's, it's hard to, to follow through. I call it the Wednesday rule. Like everyone has these grand plans about culture and things like that. But what are you doing on Wednesday morning when someone does something that's against your culture? Do you pull that up? You know, do you have the emotional energy and the strength to stand up and go, that doesn't align with what we're trying to do. We need to stop that. Because the more people that do that get the Wednesday rule right, you don't have to make the big, wide-sweeping um, uh, business changes around culture and leadership and this is, this is not the behaviour we, we expect. Don't have to make the rules. If you, if you have a good vision and an understanding and good education for your staff and then have people that, that pull each other up and help each other and take the stigma away from corrective behaviour, you'll have a better culture. Yeah, like feedback, little and often, yep. rather than letting it build up, build, and then it, it blows up into a, a, a big sit-down conversation. You're not doing this. Yep. This sometimes comes as a surprise, like where has this come from, mm-hmm. wherever it's like regular check-ins, if you yep. will. Yeah. And take the stigma away from it. Mm. So but it's a good thing. Like you benefit. There's yes. op- like, you know, the cliches, I hate them, but sometimes they're, they're accurate, is that, there's opportunity for growth yep. in in those moments. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And you got to want it. If if the if yeah if both if all yeah. parties are open yeah. to it. Yes. As, as an individual, you want growth. Like I want to be better. Mm. I want to get better. So this is what I should do. Yep. Where, from a coaching perspective, and we had a conversation about this. We, we've we've chatted about it like previously. Where do you feel like with what you've just mentioned are the biggest opportunities for coaches or leaders of of organizations mm-hmm. currently today. Yeah. I'm really glad that you put the organization part into it because I see it across multiple professions. So from a leadership point of view, you have to leaders have to be empathetic. So to me a good leader is not someone who's bossy and has all the answers. A good leader is someone who's empathetic and listens. A leader is someone who communicates well. And a leader is someone who who genuinely understands their role in the organization and wants everyone under them to succeed. So if you're in a leadership role and you're worried about someone taking your job underneath you, you'll be protective of IP. You'll be unconsciously less willing to help them. You know, you, oh, you stay in your lane, stay in your box. And we get, as leaders, I think sometimes we get caught up in surrounding ourselves with people that are just good at what we're good at so it and that reinforces the value of what we're good at so it's like okay i'm good with people so i'm going to get all people in my in my inner circle that are good with people and that reinforces that that's a really important trait it's what works for me what works for me yeah and that reinforces that so i think with with any organization you want to get leaders who communicate really well and that surround themselves with people with um, uh, different skill sets to them, complementary skill sets to them. So when I'm creating a team, um, a coaching team that I'm working with, I want coaches who communicate differently to what I do. So I want people... So when I speak to a room of 100 people, 
I think I have good communication, so I, I'm going to reach 75 of them. Now, I could relay my address a different way, and I'm still only going to reach 75. There's 25 that I'm not going to reach because they just don't connect with the way I communicate. If I get other people to speak in that room that communicate the same way as I do, those 25% of the people are still going to be left out. So if I get people that communicate a different way, say it their way, and don't try and change them, oh, no, no, don't say it like that, you should say it like this, like I would do it. If I let them be them, they'll reach the 25. And not be not be intimidated by that, not be not be um, protective of the way I do it and encourage them to be the way they want to do it. That's, um, that's to me, is what a good leader is. So someone that can prov- put teams in place and value what other people bring, value the way they communicate and value the way they lead. And is that, what I take from that is removing almost, not removing, keeping yourself in the equation, but not looking at it through purely your lens. Yes. Like to, to look at things objectively, seeking feedback yep. and constantly checking in to see how everyone is doing, how things are landing and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, so that's, a, that's a, a really important component of it. So that's sort of 50% of it for me, that, that feedback cycle, the improvement cycles, the... Um, the way that you identify issues and, and um, evaluate how you're performing. And also too, if, if we talk about coaching, for example, ma- management works sort of the same way. You've got the communication empathetic aspect of it. You've got the, do I actually know what I'm talking about? You know, do I, do I know football? Do I know the skills? Do I know how to break it down? And then you've got the um, evaluation side of it. So am I, getting, am I seeking stats? Am I getting other people's opinions? What am I seeing when I watch the game? Obviously, they're all related, but they're different aspects and people will bring different things. And in um, coaching development, when, you, when you're dealing with, with uh, younger coaches, young in terms of football experience or coaching experience as opposed to chronological age, when you're dealing with developing coaches, each one of those areas will need a different amount of attention depending on who they are. And it's important to address that. And that's all about evaluating where you are now to get progress because everyone's not in the same spot. Constantly checking in. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Do you think with the popularity, and I'll draw a, a wide, wide range here of, say, movies that involve coaching or management of teams, movies or shows, like, mm. say, from example, like a Moneyball. Mm-hmm. Uh, based in some sort of like rally, and then to ones like a, a Ted Lasso, and I don't mm-hmm. know whether you watched that. Uh, no, watched I haven't that seen show. much of it yet. It's it where like an American football coach goes and and coaches uh, a English soccer team. He's more probably like a people first, you know, mm-hmm. human approach. Whereas you look at your money balls purely about like stats and and yep. processes and numbers. Do you think there's a happy medium in between all of that? Mm. Yeah. Yes, is the yes is the first answer. Um, with the extension of, so you got to have it in your team. So that's your coaching team. So um, if you look at traditionally coaches that have been successful um, in a lot of different sports have been hard, and we perceive hard um, differently. 
as a society. So I think people that are not on the inside of sports teams look at it and go, oh, they're just yelling at players. They're just the expectations are too high. You know, they they're they're asking a lot of their players. You know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, and and don't get me wrong, a lot of it has crossed into that. So, Coach Lombardi, who quite a famous coach, he's a hard coach. He had a real hard edge to him, and 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 drove a higher standard. Um, so that style of coaching has been equated with success a lot. Now, the issue is, is that those successful coaches have always um, dampened the, the, the severeness of that with love, like a genuine care for their players, like a genuine connection with their players. And they've been able to make their players understand that they're trying to do what's best for them. So they see them, we all have this, you know, there's, there's a, everyone that meets you has a different version of you. Mm. So there's a thousand different Dusties out there because everyone that sees you is different. So a coach has what we would like to think is this inflated idea of who you could be. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is where you are now. This is, this is how I see you. Yep. And coaching is about the transition between where they are now and where they could be. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make everyone better versions of themselves. So how do you do that? You're relentless and you don't, you don't let them use excuses for themselves because we've all got excuses for why we don't work out. We've all got excuses for why we do things that take us away from our goals. Coaches, good coaches, don't let you do that. They strip back the excuses and go, no, I know there's a battle between where you want to get to and what you want now, but what you want now doesn't matter. You've got to do this to get to there. So people think that you've got to yell and scream to get that. You don't. And that's where coaching has changed a lot in that the connection with players, the creating culture, the ownership, the player investment, the um, taking responsibility for your own careers, all those kind of things, they're coming in now. To pull away from that head coach has to drive everybody to get to where they are. It's like, that's exhausting. Take it from someone who's tried to do it for years. Driving 50 people, you can only get them to a certain level. You can't get, you won't get, if you're, if I'm coaching a team, I have a team performance line. Now that's the line that I can get a whole team of people to. That's the maximum. Now some people within that team are already past that. But it's their responsibility to drive it further. And there's individuals below that line, but that's why that line's the average made up of all the performance of your team. I can't dry, I can't, I raise that bar every year, but you can't just put it ridiculously high that they're never going to meet it because then you lose all your credibility. So it's the individual responsibility of the players to drive that, their individual line higher and that takes the, the, group, the group mean higher. Yep. So that's exhausting. Um, and, and is ineffective on an individual basis. So it's about making sure those players take ownership, feedback in, make the head coach's job easier. So we're moving away from that. I have to set the hardest edge and changing public perception that you have to yell at your team. Because I, don't, I have never met someone that likes getting yelled at. Now, I've got players that are like, yeah, yell at me, mate, that's fine. But it's, that's not the best way to get it out of them. They'll, they'll cop it and they'll take it and that's fine. And as a coach, I'll yell at one player, but I'm actually talking to another because I know that player can take it and the other one can't. But a lot of the times, 
And I did it in my younger days. When you're yelling, you're yelling because you're frustrated because you think you have a bigger effect on the game than you actually do. Yeah. That's the big, it's a, it's a, it's a perception of control that you don't have and you have to accept that you don't have it. It's like you, you don't see President Obama yelling and different circumstances, yes, because you've got, you know, everyone's you know, undivided attention as you do in a, in a coaching huddle as well. And one of the, the best things I ever experienced like on the footy field, I want to say best, like most memorable is playing like rep footy and where all the players from the better players from certain teams come together and play in, in a comp and the captain of our team who we all hated playing against. Yeah. Real, real hard bastard to play against. The way he spoke to us when we are on the same team, he was almost, it wasn't whispering, but it was just like conversational. You know, there's all this noise around and stuff and he was just saying, when it's your turn to go, you do this and you do that sort of thing and he'd look people in the eyes mm-hmm. and whatnot. That, I can I can handle getting baked by a coach, that's mm-hmm. fine. You come in 10 goals down at half time, you know it's coming and, mm-hmm. and sometimes for the theatrics it needs to show, for the, they need yep. to show that they care. You know, mm-hmm. if, and there's, do you think it's more, is there a, a change in, the generation of athletes coming out where less and less respond to that as well or is it just less acceptable to be seen to be yelling at players or I'm going through I feel like there are a lot of questions out here is it just less effective it's less effective yeah it's, it's very much I don't think I I hear a lot of people say that uh, older people say that society's changing and people can't handle it anymore I don't think it's that I don't think it's that at all I think we have a better understanding of, of performance so we have a better understanding that when we make someone feel like shit, they don't perform. Mm. And I think that's the important step. It's like, well, how are you making what f- what feeling are you engendering in your players? So if and it depends on what level you're you're working at. So when I used to bake players, it was about so bake players, I never bake players. When I used to raise my voice at the team, address the team, address yeah. the team in a forceful yeah. way. Um it was about getting them to stop. So you're playing, you're performing, things aren't going well, you're in quicksand, things are getting worse and worse and worse and nothing seems to work. There's nothing like a good yell that's like, okay, that's done now, next. It's like that full stop point. Mm. So that's the way I was seeing it because I would never yell, you know, you haven't done this and you had that never works. You, you just lose players for, for a season. But the reason that I got away from that at all is because... Players would joke about it later. And when I mean later, I mean three years later. So I'm like, you wouldn't remember what I said to you last week as a group, but you're joking about something that I yelled about three years ago. That's not creating, that's not imprinting a good impression here. So you're remembering things that I said, um, yelled three years ago, that's not leaving the impression that I want. Mm. So now it's just that I just so I'll still I'll still give them a rever. You know, there's there's a photo of me that came out last year that looked like I'm a demon possessed. Mm. Love it. Um, but there's no point. There's yeah. no point yelling for for poor performance anymore. In the times, you know, there's I'm not sure if you saw the Making Their Mark uh, documentary on Amazon last year, where it showed some of the one of the coaches who was on there, AFL coach, mm-hmm. and just showed him giving the players a bake like you know yep. i can't remember the specifics of it but it was very animated mm-hmm. and do you think that's 
obviously we just discussed there's a time and a place for that, probably becoming less and less. Is that more, you think, just the coach really just showing their – clearly it's the coach showing their emotion. But is that, do you think, like a loss of maybe – control the situation or just like becoming a bit too emotional in that particular instance? Yeah, I think I'd be reticent to to comment on like an AFL an AFL coach because their job like I only understand sort of seventy percent of what they mm. do. So I would feel a bit like an imposter and and trying to comment and, and critique what an AFL an AFL coach is doing. But the way the way I would sort of unpack that is if you look at AFL men, the, the what they have to know now in terms of structured football, mm-hmm. in terms of roles, responsibilities, scenarios, all that kind of stuff, um, it's so much more than it used to be. Mm-hmm. So back in the day, it used to be the head coach yelling to try and get everyone on the same page. Mm-hmm. Now there's so many different pages. Yeah. There's so it's many different book. yeah. There's so many different scenarios. So um, whether that means they require, you know, and these are professional athletes, whether they require a wake up, a, you know, get back on the same page or, or what it is, I'm not really sure. But I think at a lot of levels underneath it, especially any community level, doesn't work. Right. Aside from your coaching mm-hmm. in, in professional, semi-professional women's football, with the work that you're doing mm-hmm. and the research that you're, that you've come, is it still research that yep. you're, you're working? What, what's the, and being concussion being one of those, not to, I don't know if there's, there's like a, a, a buzz, not a buzzword, but it's a very relevant topic mm-hmm. at the moment, particularly in, I'll say in Australia, but amongst like sporting cultures, well, just sports you yep. know, around the world. Where, where are things at as far as, what we know and the impact it's going to have. We've seen the impact it's had on the Australian sporting landscape mm-hmm. from your contact sports mm-hmm. with with Aussie rules football, with rugby, mm-hmm. and then even, you know, head injuries and whatnot, say like in cricket. Yep. Some had like tragic outcomes uh, as well. But even now, you know, some gets hit in the head and it's taken extremely seriously. And then uh, across, the, across the world in... American football, some very high-profile incidents of... And there's a term that comes out like CTE. Mm-hmm. And I'm not quite sure. I hear it like mentioned like mm-hmm. all the time and I never go and sort of like research it and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Where, where is concussion at in sports like at the moment? And do you see them changing a lot yep. in the next okay. generation? All right, so I'll... A bit to unpack there, Yeah, there's, there's a lot yeah. to unpack there. So what I'll do is I'll give my sort of five-minute spiel on, mm. on concussions in general. So um, sports-related concussions for a long time were considered not to be an injury. You know, the, the old, any injury that's above the neck doesn't count. Yep. So that was the attitude towards that um, was was all, it was the same across the world. You know, if you, you get a concussion once you, once you can, sometimes even you can't see straight, you go back in. Mm. All right. So a couple of things. One the important thing is, is what is happening in your brain now? So I get hit in the head um, of varying forces. What's happening now? Important. The reason that's important is because we want to take a cautious approach because if you receive another knock then, we don't exactly know what happens, but we know it's not good. So, all right, so how do we identify injuries to start with? 
Um, and then the next step is what's happening? What's the long-term effect of this? What's does, is it related to a neurodegenerative age related something? So those are two separate points and they're very important points. The reason that the second one is becoming more important is because we're living longer. If your life expectancy, you know, is 60, then neurodegenerative diseases that show up when you're 80 doesn't matter, doesn't exist. So we're living longer and we understand more. So the first part about it is I concussions are very um, emotion related and there's a lot of opinions out there that aren't based on much. So the, the attitude towards concussions was same worldwide um, and that's changing as our understanding of what the injury is and, and how things are changing. So um, from a sport point of view, what we want to do is we want to identify the injury. So a part of injury identification is knowing what the symptoms are. How do these injuries present and how are these injuries sustained? So if we know more about how they're sustained, so head hits ground, concussion, we look for that, all right? That player's head's just hit the ground. Let's watch for signs is what we see in a person and symptoms what they report to us and better knowledge around what those signs and symptoms are. So that's a really important component of it. So there's better injury identification. Everybody in the industry, whether it's the sporting industry, the medical industry or the research industry says the same thing. If you suspect a concussion, they're done. Bring them out. Now, uh, the, the conversations that rear up around that are very, very different. You know, what does that mean and the severity of that and all those kind of things. That the, a lot of people have a lot of opinions based on that, but everyone says the same thing. If you suspect a concussion, get out. So we, t- we take a very conservative approach with that, and I think that's the right thing to do. Flowing on from that, um, once you've identified the injury, it's about how you appropriately manage that injury. So with a hamstring, we get a scan. We see the extent of the injury, the location of the injury, and we're like, great. We can then scan again. We know the protocol for recovery return to play. That's fine. And we know the re-injury rates. There's been a lot of research done. That's really easy. With the brain, we have no idea. Now, when we say have no idea, I, I say that almost a little bit flippantly, but or it's to illustrate a point that we're in the infancy of understanding the... the um, physiological changes like what actually happens at a cellular level we understand and but as a system as the as a whole brain we don't really know what happens um how long it takes to recover all those kind of things so scientists that um use an mri will say these are the these are the hallmarks clinical psychs will say this is these are the symptoms you know signs and symptoms um and so people generally recover all looking using all those techniques generally recover somewhere between two weeks and a month. So 80% of, of injured people will recover within a month. Mm-hmm. That you, People used to think that was a week. The reason they used to think that was a week is because people didn't really have an understanding of the symptoms and we didn't have ways to measure it. For example, if we measure um, a person's working memory, so how many you know numbers you can store in your in your um, short-term memory at any given time and can relay back to a person that'll have a certain recovery time but if we use a computer that measures your reaction time and things like that really really sensitively uh, really accurately then we'll see that you may not and you and you put in full effort you may not be recovered for, for a couple of weeks 
Now, there's a portion of people, we're not really sure the portion, 10 to 20% of people that will still have symptoms and problems past a month. And they'll have persistent post-concussion symptoms. So PPCS. Um, now, why those people have those, we're not sure. Now, there's a lot of factors that go into this. There's a lot of different things to go into this. But basically, we're not sure. How long they'll recover, we're not sure. What's the best way to do, best way to help these people recover, we're not sure. What's the best treatment option? So the reason that's important is because everyone agrees that you shouldn't go back until you're fully recovered. So again, there's, there's some general consensus of, of the bigger steps and then the, within that there's a, there's a lot of debate. Now then the long-term implications of this um, are different for different people. They're different, like somebody can have one, uh, have um, a, a prolonged recovery after one injury and then some people can have a couple of injuries or 10 injuries and, and have no, no ongoing problems at all. But what we're finding as scientists that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that your brains are different to people that haven't had a concussion. Now, the important thing to note with that is that there's a lot of things that change your brain. So they look at things like people that um, participate in um, team sports versus non-team sports and they find differences in their brain. So individual sports or team sports, there's differences in the brain. So there's a lot of fact- lifestyle factors and smoking, all these kind of things, sleep and all these things that change the, the, the chemistry and change the makeup of your brain. So there's a lot of things that go into it. So there's, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to unpack there. But basically there's differences between the groups. So we're like, okay, there might be something here now. So now we're looking at what are the long-term implications of sports-related concussions. Now when you bring up CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, now the important thing with that is that is related to repeated head trauma. So it is not necessarily just related to concussions. It's related to how many times you've hit your head. Now, this is where there's emerging scientific research around contact sport. So what does playing contact sport do to your brain? All right. So there's a whole, there's a whole area of research now around just a season of sport. What does a season of North American football do to your brain? What does it look like? How do you, how do you respond to all these kind of things? Does it, you know, does it come back to baseline? All those kind of things. So there's all that to unpack as well. So on top of all that is the media, is the sensationalized versions of individual athletes that have ongoing symptoms that may or may not be related to a history of head trauma. So we know that hitting your head, so I'm stepping back now, 30,000 foot view, head trauma is not good. It's not good for you. Um, Everybody knows that. Everyone agrees with that. What level creates long-term changes? We don't know. So from tap on the side of the head with an inflatable pull noodle all the way up to car accident, there's a whole spectrum. Within that spectrum, there's individual differences. You get hit with a pull noodle. I get hit with a pull noodle. We respond differently. The direction, force, all those kind of things have an impact. So there's so many things to unpack. Um, in my opinion, there's not, I haven't seen evidence that would make me go, I wouldn't let my kids play football. 
That was going to be my next yeah. question. Yeah. Yep. So I'm I'm not, and this is just an opinion now um, of someone who loves sport and loves football. I think there's enough there's enough evidence to show that um, uh, exercise, connection with with society, um, getting outdoors in nature, all of these things, all the things that come with team sport with football, um, they're all they all have a benefit for brain health. So there's there's they're they're on one side of the scale, and then the the repetitive head hits, dissociation with that kind of stuff is the other side of the scale. And right now, I don't think that the, the concussions outweigh the benefit of playing football. The next step on that, though, is I really appreciate the changes that the AFL are making in terms of the game. Protecting the head. You can't hit in the head. Um, the bump, you know, if you choose to bump and you hit in the head, that's your responsibility. I think that's that's a, a really good way of looking at it because then it puts the, the onus to change mm. the um, the game a little bit. The mandatory one week off, I think, is a fantastic idea because you're giving you're taking away the the ability of the athlete to lie for the test. Oh, no, no, I'm good. And then they go home and they've got a headache for three days. They, it just takes – obviously that shows up on the next week, yeah. but that, that's a different, you know, it's a different story. You're giving them at least a week to try and get to that. Um, but it's important to acknowledge that when we look at gender differences for concussion, there's some really interesting work done in the States looking at hockey. So women's hockey, they're not allowed to – check so they're not allowed to make body contact they still have the same or higher rates of concussions as in the males in the male game it's just their modes are different they hit the boards they hit the ice those kind of things so although it um we might think it makes sense to legislate the game to take concussions out you can't so if you made football ultimate frisbee still has concussions volleyball Concussions, basketball, concussions. So these injuries are going to keep going no matter how many rules you change. So that's why I like what the AFL's done in that it's still a contact game. There's just better education. Yeah. Like if someone, if someone's at local level, you know, in, in Richmond, local level in, in Glen Waverley, and you want to do something about concussions, call Malcolm Banks. Get him down, get him down to, your, to your football club. He's a tackling coach. And he teaches how to tackle, how to fall, how to get into good positions. We're talking about a guy with 20 years of experience who works with AFL men's clubs that's willing to come down to your club and teach your um, son or daughter how to, how to fall, yeah. how to tackle, and how to be safe. Yeah. So you're not going to take them out, but there's a lot, of thing, a lot of things that you can do within the game skill-wise to help. It's like the, the – talking about like the differences. Like the, I've, I've made it up myself, like the noodle rule, pool noodle rule. Yeah. You, know, you can tap some of the pool noodle, have totes, so it's not necessarily legislating the rules or how they go about it. And, yeah, hockey's obviously, obviously a great example. And it seems to me like the average punter who sits on the couch and, and watches and but also sees, like, you know, community sport, having played, seen the impacts on, on friends, that there's still a lot of stuff that we don't know. So we, we err on the side of caution whilst mm-hmm. we're finding out as much as we can about this stuff and implement the rules to still uphold integrity of the games and things as well as, you know, like a, having a week off, you know, mandatory, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, and it's – all of these things are sort of interrelated. The problem with concussions is it doesn't show up on a scan. Mm-hmm. So if you get concussed and I scan your brain, I there, there'll be no features on that. Typically, 95% of the time, there'll be no features 
um, of a concussion. And the important thing is, if I scan your brain and there are features, that's not a concussion. That's a moderate traumatic brain injury. So that's actually a more severe injury. So once you get features on a scan, so the way you know we scan your hamstring, there's the tear. If you've got features, you don't have a concussion anymore because concussions are the really mild, mild, mild end of the mild traumatic brain injury spectrum. So TBIs are a whole nother conversation. So uh, TBIs is the spectrum. Right. So traumatic brain injury is the umbrella term for injuries of any of any injury yeah. of any severity. Sorry. So you've got mild, moderate, and severe. Um within that spectrum so within the mild spectrum is concussion sort of at the at the very start it's at the mild and so they you can have a sports related concussion and not have the features of a mild traumatic brain injury but we now we understand that that's what it is right but that was one of the problems with the science before it's like well they're not according to this scale they're not meeting the scale it's like yes but they've still got impaired function if they've they've had an injury so and on the extreme extent would be something like a kevin pierce like a, I think the snowboarder uh, guy who was, you know, on track 2010 and had a terrible accident and stuff and had to relearn how to do everything yep. again. Right. Yep, exactly. Okay. Yep. So um, hospitalisation, you know, months and months and months and months and months, years of rehab, like, yeah, yeah. Severe traumatic brain injuries are, yeah, they're um, serious. What would you say your core values are? And... Hazarding a guess that I think I know one of them being <laughs> connection. Yep. What? Tell me a bit more about that and some other core values that you live. I ask everyone who comes on the show because mm-hmm. I'm particularly interested in that as a view to a filter to how you make decisions in your life, yeah. how you go about things. What are some of your core values? Uh, so every day I want to do something that helps somebody and every day I want to learn something new. That's it. That's, that's pretty much what it is. So... Um, it's, it's not about being this type of person or, or a, a grand plan or anything like that. It's like, well, what do I do every day? What's a little thing I can do that's going to make someone else's day better? And what's an, another thing that I can learn every day? That's essentially what it comes down to. So philosophies as a coach is around ownership and purpose. So as, as a coach... What's my, what's my purpose? And then I can take ownership of the things that drive me to my purpose. It's the same as the players. So as, as a head coach, my purpose is to make the line coaches better who then make the, the players better. So how do I take ownership of what I'm doing for those coaches who are then... And so it's a simple, simple rubric that you can put on to what you're doing to be like, well, am I taking ownership of the things that I'm supposed to do to, to build me to my purpose? And that changes. Like it's flexible to my purpose at work. Like at work, I'm the the middle rung. I'm the the pleb for the. You know, we think that a we give reverence to a PhD. You're a doctor, and then you work in academia, and everybody's got a PhD. You just you're just another pleb. You know, you're just another worker. You're another busy bee. Like the some of the researchers I work with are just phenomenal. Like they are phenomenally intelligent, driven people, um, and we need to listen to them more. You know, we need to give them microphones better as a society. We need to, I think we need to give them a level of reverence for understanding of what they contribute to to how we function. I think that's one of the things that we've gone away from. So um, for me, it's about coaching is about ownership and purpose and, and at work it's a different ownership and a different purpose. You know, at work it might be 
helping PhD students, it might be helping honours students, but it's it comes back to that same rubric of how am I helping someone else and what am I learning today? Because the learning part makes you better and the helping part makes you better. Love it. It's pretty simple. Hmm. It always <laughs> is in the end. It really is when you distill it down, yeah. Dr. Brendan Major, thank oh. you very much for joining me on the show and found like in, incredibly interesting and I've learned a lot and with the the sort of three pillars of of this podcast being you know to inform inspire and entertain I think we've you know we've ticked all of those boxes in some way shape or form particularly informative and I also think like inspiring particularly like learn from and I hope a lot of the guests with kids or who do play sport learn you know take something from this from someone who knows what they're talking about so very appreciative of your time and thanks for coming on the show Mm, thank you very much it's been fun Thank you.